understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. Hi, everybody. This is Scott Kennedy, Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm delighted to host this session of China Field Notes. And today, I am joined by Wu Xinbo. Who is one of China's preeminent America watchers and experts on U.S.-China relations? Shinbo is professor and dean of the Institute of International Studies and director of the Center for American Studies at Fudan University. He is an extremely prolific author and commentator. He's written a number of books. Going back to the late 1990s, when he wrote Dollar Diplomacy and Major Powers in China, 1909 to 1913, he's also written a book called Turbulent Water: U.S. Asia Pacific Security Strategy in the Post Cold War Era and Managing Crisis and Sustaining Peace Between China and the United States, which came out from USIP in 2008, and many others. I first got to know Shinbo in 1999, which tells you that he and I are both relatively old. When Shinbo was a visiting scholar at the Brookings Institution, and I was there working on my dissertation as a fellow, and we had a fantastic year getting to know each other, which was a really interesting time because it was the end of the Clinton administration and before China joined the WTO and before any of the crazy stuff that we're all familiar with in U.S.-China relations happened. It was a hopeful time, a little bit different from today's era. Shimbo, thank you so much for joining me on China Field Notes. Well, thank you for inviting me, Scott. Nice to talk to you. Well, also, if I'm not mistaken, you also are an avid swimmer, and you are in great shape. Do I have that right? Yes, I do uh, swimming for more than twenty years, and also other exercise to keep myself in good shape and in good spirit. Yeah, I remember. One year, I think it was 2006, and we were part of a group that climbed Huangshan in in Anhui, and you were way ahead of the rest of us. So, in any case, you probably are as good a swimmer, if not better, than Mao, and you could probably cross the Yangtze River or the Huangpu River in Shanghai. But I'm also very good in climbing mountains because I grew up in a mountainous region in Anhui. The middle of China. Oh, so when we were in Huangshan, we were near your hometown. Yes, I'm not far away from my hometown. Yeah, well, that's terrific. That's 
uh, sort of the cradle of agricultural reform in the 1970s. And so even though Interior Province actually critical to reform and opening, which is a good way to start our conversation. So tell tell us a little bit about how you got interested in international relations and U.S.-China relations, even though you came from Anhui. I entered Fudai University in 1982 as an undergraduate majoring in history. And then when I moved up to my PhD stage, I worked on the diplomatic history of China-U.S. relations. As you just mentioned, I wrote my dissertation, China-U.S. relations during the William Taft administration. That was before World War One. And after receiving my PhD, I got a job to work at the Center for American Studies at Fudan University. The center would like me to study contemporary America and uh, the current state of China-U.S. relations. But what really uh, drew me interested in international relations and China-U.S. relations was in 1994, when I went to Washington, D.C. as a visiting scholar at the George Washington University for one year, attending class on China-U.S. relations and attending various conferences, seminars, in Washington about China and China-U.S. relations, that really drew me addicted to this relationship. And actually, that was also a very exciting period for this relationship because in China, after Deng Xiaoping's southern tour in 1992, China was uh, undertaking its economic takeoff, another major round of open up and reform and opening up to the outside world again. Why in the U.S. there was a debate about whether the U.S. should engage a rising China or to contain a rising China. So a lot of interesting things happening, which is both challenging and stimulating intellectually. So my one year in Washington, D.C. really helped me a lot um, in getting me devote more attention to this important relationship, and of course, also to U.S. domestic politics. Well, if you were there in 1994 or so, then you would have been there during the early Clinton administration when they were debating whether or not to condition extension of most favored nation status on human rights or other types of conditions. And a big debate in the Congress and, of course, within the administration, I think eventually the administration decided to delink MFN from human rights issues and, and others. Do I have the timing right? And what was the big takeaway that you had from that year in terms of what American, how American domestic politics or affected the relationship? You are, you are very correct uh, by pointing to the debate on uh, MFN for China in that year. Actually, I watched that debate very closely and also very much impressed by the decision made by the Clinton administration to delink MFN from human rights conditions in China. What impressed me from this episode is that the U.S. business community, actually, they were very active in lobbying Congress as well as the Clinton administration now to, uh, you know, put political conditions on economic ties with China. And also they made a very uh, strong point saying that as China become more prosperous and further immersed into the international community, 
we will say Chinese, uh, the U.S. would say China, Chinese society becoming more open and also uh, play by the rules of international system. So I think this kind of logic finally persuaded the Clinton administration to make the right decision. Of course, as I mentioned, there was a very strong commercial logic behind this because China at that time was regarded as the number one emerging market in the 21st century, which means it was very important to U.S. economic interests. So the walk away from this episode was that I think the U.S.-China policy would be mainly driven by economic logic, economic consideration, economic interest, rather than political interest in the post-Cold War Europe. Am I correct? Well, certainly that was a, a central part of the conversation back then. But I think having just finished the Cold War, China starting on reform and again after Deng's Southern Tour, as, as you mentioned, there seemed to be little in the way of what we today call strategic competition between the U.S. and China. China's size and strength was a lot smaller than today. Actually, U.S.-China commercial ties were tiny fraction of, of what they are today. But nevertheless, I, th I think you're, you're broadly right. It was a bet on the future. I think there's some folks in Washington now, as you know, who debate whether the U.S. made the right bet on the future back then. And that's something that we'll, we'll, we'll get further into. But let me ask, I still want to stay in that hopeful period and move ahead just a little bit. In June of 1998, President Clinton visited China. He, it was a return visit from Jiang Zemin's visit in 1997. And he visited Shanghai and hosted and spoke to a group of scholars. And I believe that you were part of the group. And there's a record of the conversation because everything our president says is written down someplace. And apparently you and he had an interesting exchange where you gave a, a relatively positive assessment of the state of U.S.-China relations, I think you called it mature. And I, I just want to double check to make sure the history records are correct. And if so, what led you to believe relations had matured? And and then I guess looking forward, how things changed, gone from mature to immature or problematic over the last 25 years since uh, the president was in Shanghai in 1998? Well, you did a good research, uh, Scott. Yes, I think I did use the word mature to describe the relationship back in 1998. A major reason for me to make that point is that for some time in 1990s, with the end of Cold War, I think China-U.S. relations lost its prior framework, which basically was a Cold War framework in which China-U.S. conducted strategic cooperation in containing Soviet Union. So with the collapse of Soviet Union and the end of Cold War, that framework was gone. And we need to find a new framework. It took quite a few years until President Jia and President Clinton conducted the exchange of visits. We somehow figured out how to handle this relationship in a post-Cold War environment. For China, I think the assumption was that China will stay on the track of open up and reform and to seek good relations with the United States, to seek the U.S. assistance in China's economic modernization, while China also seeks 
to join the international system, which was largely led by the United States. On the U.S. side, after the debate about whether to engage or to contain a rising China, there was also a consensus that the U.S. should engage a rising China and encourage China's open-up reform and also encourage China's integration into the international system. So I think both sides somehow they found the framework in which to handle their relations in a post-Cold War Europe. So in that sense, I call this relationship as mature. However, things have changed a lot for mainly two reasons. One is that China has become much more powerful. In 1990s, China only ranked, ranked 10th in the world in terms of its economic size, and today is the second largest economy in the world. And at that time, China's foreign policy largely followed Deng's advice to keep a low profile. So we didn't want to you know, come into conflict with the U.S. We wanted to be more reconciliatory uh, with the U.S. But today, I think China has become more confident and more proactive in international affairs, and sometimes not afraid of frictions and conflicts with the U.S. So this is one change on the Chinese side. Another reason is the change on the U.S. side. In the 1990s, the U.S. was way ahead of other countries, not to say China. But today, I think the U.S. is becoming increasingly concerned about its position in the world in terms of both power and influence. And many people believe that the good day of the U.S. is over, largely because of the rise of China. So I think people in Washington, they are increasingly concerned about China's rising capability, and they are determined that it should stop engaging China, but rather adopt adoption, adopting a policy of so-called strategic competition, which from a Chinese perspective is nothing but containment against China. So that is how we think things have changed from 19, late 1990s till today. Well, let me follow up on that. Those are really helpful points, changes on both sides. You're an international relations scholar. You started as a historian, but you've followed that debate for a long time. The explanation that you just gave sounds a lot like traditional realism. The changes in relative power, changing the nature of the foreign policies of the two countries. Do you think that domestic politics in both countries matters? That there's obviously been some changes in American domestic politics uh, that you suggested, but also changes in Chinese politics. The leadership in China has evolved. Jiang Zemin is not leader any longer. We had Hu Jintao and then Xi Jinping. The domestic policymaking process has changed in China some. Are there domestic reasons or, or domestic changes in the countries that might also explain these different approaches to the relationship? Well, certainly that is the case from the U.S. side. I think on the U.S. side, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, 
they are competing for the support of the blue color class. So the blue color class basically they are kind of underdog in globalization. So they suffered from the relocation of manufacturing base from the U.S. to China. They suffered from the outflow of U.S. investment. And they suffered from the U.S. joining many free trade arrangements with other countries by later or much later. So as a result of that, there is a rising protectionist sentiment in the U.S., which basically draw the attention of both parties. Donald Trump was the very first to embrace this sentiment and followed by Joe Biden. So I think that is a major domestic driving force behind the U.S. policy towards China. Another factor is that in the U.S., especially among the U.S. elite, there is a strong belief, a myth, that U.S. is born to lead U.S. is born to, the, to be the number one in the world. If a rising China is going to challenge the U.S. leadership, the U.S. has no choice but to contain China. And in this regard, uh, it may not have to do with what China has done or is doing. As long as China's capability rises, the U.S. would have to respond to that. If this is not China, it's Japan, or Germany, the U.S. might respond likely. So that is another reason why uh, domestic politics uh, matters. On the Chinese side, I think leaders matter. But more importantly, I think China's growing capability and its growing influence in the world also somehow give rise to a kind of you know national sentiment of national pride and people urging the leadership to, to be tougher in dealing with challenges from other countries, particularly from the United States, and urging uh, the government to be more proactive, proactive in international affairs so as to safeguard China's national interests. So certainly there is also a domestic dimension on the Chinese side but it may not be that strong as in the U.S. side. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave a speech about the international economy and U.S. policy, and he cited some of the same things that you mentioned with regard to the effect that globalization had on the American economy and certain segments of the American economy, and then explained why the U.S. needed to have a new economic strategy that is different. Uh, he didn't describe it as uh, protectionist, but he certainly described it as U.S. needing to have much more proactive investment in different industries and things of that nature. I actually think that the data on the effect of globalization on the American workers is more mixed than folks in Washington admit and, and maybe a little bit different than what you said. It's Anyway, it's a central topic, and it, it's one reason why there is a debate about whether the U.S. might have made a mistake going back to the 1990s and 2000 when, when China joined the WTO, or if there's things that we could have done better to adapt to an increasingly powerful Chinese economy that became central to, to global manufacturing. And, and so that brings up this question that, that people debate about now regarding what they call the topic of decoupling. 
Decoupling is, is really about a change of reducing one's dependence on the other side. And certainly the, the dominant topic of that conversation is about changes in American policy. But as you know, China has adopted a variety of restrictions on interaction with the U.S. and the West, has a closed capital account. It restricts access to the global Internet and Western media. China has probably the largest industrial policy machine of any country in the world with some restrictions on foreign businesses in China and, and for imports. Isn't China's approach to international society and the global economy relatively similar to what we're beginning to see in the United States with trying to impose some kinds of limits or restrictions on the relationship, what people call decoupling? Isn't that sort of China's version of the same style of policy? Well, my interpretation is that uh, that is different from the U.S. version of decoupling. One is that China is driven by the aspiration to move up the value chain. So I think for any country, it's a normal phenomenon that it wants to become more competitive by moving up the value chain, not just stay at the lower end of the value chain. So that is different from uh, decoupling. Secondly, well, China still has some restrictions in certain areas. But remember where China came from. If you compare with China's past, I think China is moving in the right direction compared with the past. If we just say this is a bottle, in the past, this bottle is 100% empty. Now it's already 50, 60% full. The U.S. is moving in the other direction. The U.S. bottle used to be maybe 80, 90% full. Now it's becoming only 70, 60% full. So actually, U.S. is moving in the other uh, direction. If China is gradually making progress, China, U.S. is more back to the past when the U.S. was more protectionist. So I think we see two different trends in this direction. However, I think this is also a kind of interactive process. If China and the U.S. can sit down to have very serious economic dialogue on their economic relationship and try to express each other's concern about others' policy, and both would agree that decoupling Total decoupling, complete decoupling is neither feasible nor desirable. And both sides would like to maintain a mutually beneficial relationship. So we can somehow coordinate our respective economic strategies and making this process less destructive. So this is something we need down the road. I think that's a really good point that the American policies and Chinese policies are responsive and reactive to each other, that they are responding to challenges they see on the other side. And it's very difficult to coordinate. And of course, we have 200 countries in the world. And so you see it's very we have what is at a minimum a collective action problem, because if one side adopts a policy not in coordination with others, it pushes the others to re respond. Actually, we've seen the Biden administration multiple times emphasize that they are not pursuing 
decoupling, that they are instead imposing restrictions for national security reasons, and then also investing heavily in the United States' own industrial and manufacturing capacity. Do you think it's a stable equilibrium for the United States to have some level of national security related restrictions on the most advanced technologies and invest in its own industrial capacity and China do the same? Or do you think that that is not a, a, a stable equilibrium and will continue to see a downward spiral in political ties and in accusations about decoupling? Well, certainly we are not yet at equilibrium at this moment, uh, largely because we do not have this kind of dialogue, as I just mentioned. And also each side is still searching for the boundary of its, what are you call decoupling. So we don't know exactly where is the limit, where is the boundary for this so-called decoupling. I think uh, in the U.S., this is still very much an ongoing process. And in China, responding to rising the U.S. pressure in trade, technology, investment, and other areas. So China is also reacting accordingly. So I think this is a very much a very dynamic process. And I'm concerned that at the end of the day, we may get much more decoupling as is necessary or as desirable. So that is the dilemma of the current situation between our two countries. Well, talking about boundaries, one of the key areas where the U.S. and, and China disagree has to do with cross-strait relations, something you and I both followed for a long time. And I know that we've heard China criticize the U.S. as hollowing out its one China policy. But we've also heard Americans say that China is hollowing out its peaceful unification policy. Maybe if you could describe for our audience the core elements of China's policy of peaceful unification, whether or not you think it's making progress. If not, what are the main obstacles to achieving peaceful unification? And, you know, other things that the U.S. needs to understand about cross-strait issues. Peaceful unification or peaceful reunification basically relates to the two sides of the Taiwan Strait, Chinese mainland and Taiwan, will achieve reunification through peaceful negotiation. And after that, Taiwan will maintain its political and social system and including its own military. So that was the original formula for peaceful reunification put forward by Deng Xiaoping in early 1980s. And in the last several decades, Beijing has been trying to promote the goal of peaceful reunification through economic integration, largely economic integration of the two sides and also people-to-people exchanges. This has made some progress in terms of the degree of economic integration, especially Taiwan's dependence on the mainland for trade and investment. But this kind of economic integration has not generated strong willingness on the part of Taiwan to enter into political dialogue, not to say political negotiation with Beijing on reunification. So in that sense, I think the changing internal politics in Taiwan, which means the pro-independence party 
DPP is now ruling the party in Taiwan. They have, uh, they have been actually trying to pursue their own agenda of Taiwan independence. So that somehow made Beijing very frustrated. And people naturally question whether the policy of peaceful reunification is achievable. I think Beijing believes that it is in the best interest of both sides of the Taiwan Strait to pursue peaceful reunification. And it will continue to strive uh, in that direction. However, sometimes people also believe that economic instrument alone is not enough. You may also need some political and military pressure to make Taiwan willing to come to the negotiation uh, table. So that is what I, we have seen in recent years. Beijing has been showing its military muscle in the Taiwan Strait, not really to bring about reunification through the use of force, but rather trying to draw a boundary for Taiwan, saying, you know, that is the limit about what you can do in cross-street relations. I think a lot of work has to be done by Beijing in terms of both promote economic integration, but also to make the mainland more attractive to Taiwan, both politically, socially, and in other uh, ways. Actually, I just recently met the former Taiwan leader Ma Yingjiu during his trip to the mainland. I think we had a good conversation at Fudan University. He was a former head of the uh, nationalist Kuomintang KMT. I think that was his first trip to the mainland. He's now already 73. I think this trip impressed him a lot about the mainland. And also there were 30 some young students from Taiwan traveling with him to the mainland. They seem to be positively impressed by what they saw during this uh, trip. For the United States, I think for a long time, the U.S. has sticked to one China policy while insisting that the Taiwan issue should be resolved only by peaceful means. And also, at some point, U.S. also helped shape an environment in which two, two sides could develop their economic ties, people-to-people exchanges, and other forms of interactions. But in recent years, frankly speaking, I think the U.S. is returning to its Taiwan policy in the early years of the Cold War, which was to use Taiwan as a strategic leverage containing China. So that's caused the U.S. to hollow out its one-China policy. And if that is the case, I mean, certainly that is what Beijing believes to be the case. And at the same time in Taiwan, you will have a pro-independence party to rule the island. That will only get Beijing to come to the conclusion that peaceful reunification is hopeless. It has to switch to other options, including the use of force to bring about reunification. I don't think that is a policy that will solve the interests of all these three sides, the Chinese mainland, Taiwan, and the U.S. So in that regard, I think the U.S. can do a better job in helping shape 
and environment in the Taiwan Strait that encourage the two sides of the strait to conduct economic, social, and other forms of interactions and seek a feasible arrangement of their relations in the long term. Let me ask a little bit about this, and I appreciate the broader framing. And mind Joe's trip obviously got a lot of attention. It occurred right as President Tsai was transiting through the United States and as part of her visit to the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, when Mind Joe was president from 2008 to 2016, there was a huge expansion in cross-strait trade. Mind Joe and Xi Jinping actually met each other as well during the very end of his time. But let me ask a little bit about Chinese policies, because I, I think that's what the audience will be particularly interested in. You talked about trying to make China attractive as a unification partner for a policy of peaceful unification. And as you know, Taiwanese opinions have have shifted partly because of domestic politics. Also in watching China, they've watched very carefully developments in Hong Kong the last few years, which had a, a huge impact on public opinion on the island. Also, Taiwan's China's coercive policies, military, what some people would highlight as disinformation campaign or getting involved in Taiwan's politics. Do you think that the two approaches that China uses, one to offer a carrot and try and make a unification attractive, runs into tension with the strategies of pressure and coercion. And maybe China ought to just focus on using carrots and making itself more attractive and it would get more progress. Is that possible? Well, I hope it is possible, but many of my colleagues would say that's naive. Largely because what has changed in and outside of the Taiwan equation. Within Taiwan, as I just mentioned, the pro-independence party, DPP, is now the ruling party. So they are pursuing the pro-independence agenda. Outside of the Taiwan island, the U.S. has somehow changed its Taiwan policy by rediscovering the strategic value of Taiwan as a leverage against the mainland. So because of this kind of changes in the circumstances of Taiwan issue, it is not enough, not adequate for Beijing just to rely attracting Taiwan. You will also need some coercive instrument to shape the environment of the Taiwan issue. So I think that's the, certainly that's the adjustment of Beijing's Taiwan policy as I see it. Uh, in recent years. So it sounds like, you know, everybody is modifying their policies in some way or another in the conversation. We've heard that as a result of China's relative rise, U.S. relative decline, at least vis-a-vis -vis China, changes in domestic politics in the different societies. We definitely are at a different place today than we were 25 years ago when President Clinton visited Shanghai or 1994 when you were at GW. And few Americans have visited China in the last few years as a result of the pandemic. And few Chinese have visited the United States, you being one of the few. Now with the pandemic over, we hope that more go in both directions and that there is greater dialogue as you were suggesting. If Americans were to visit China now, what do you think they'd be most surprised about? What do you think they really ought to learn that they can't learn from their homes or offices in the United States? 
What do you what do you want them to to come away with? Well, seeing is believing. Americans when they come to China, I think two things. They 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 usually feel um, impressed. Why is the dynamics in China uh, after we enter the post pandemic period? The economy, the society is regaining vitality. These days, a couple of the recent days are the Labor Day holiday in China. So we keep reading everywhere is overcrowded on the highway, hotel, scenic spots, Huangshan, and the Imperial Palace in Beijing, the Great Hall. So that shows the great potential of the country in social economic development. So that is one thing, the China's dynamics. The other is the diversity in China. You are a China expert traveling to many places in China. In China, if you travel to Beijing, to Shanghai, and to Shenzhen or Guangzhou in the south, you get a very different impression of the country. Sometimes my colleagues joking say Beijing somehow is the past of China. Shanghai is the present of China. Shenzhen is really the future of China. So because this is so such a big country, and so uh, you can see this kind of diversity, uh, not only in cultural, but also not only culturally, but socially, economically, and in uh, uh, many other ways. Foreigners used to view China as a kind of a monolithic thing. So it's just the same everywhere. So when they come to China, they will say that is very different from their impression. I couldn't agree more that when you go to China, you certainly see an amount of physical construction and activity which you can't really picture without being there. And traveling to different parts of China, you see a very complex country in the way that the U.S. as a continental-sized country is, is so diverse across our great land from east to west, north to south. I wanted to offer you an opportunity to ask me a question. Is there something that you wanted to, to raise or exchange ideas about? Well, as a Washington, as a Washingtonian, and also a major watcher U.S.-China policy based in Washington D.C., how would you uh, score Biden's China policy in the last two and um, almost two and a half years? To what extent it met your expectation, and to what degree it didn't live up to it, your your expectation? Well, as I expected, you would ask a, a hard question, but it's it's a fair question. I give the Biden administration a reasonably good grade on this. I don't know if we ought to give it a number or a, a letter grade, but I'd probably give them somewhere around a, a B. And a B is pretty good because I think that they've done a lot better than their predecessors in the Trump administration, quite frankly. And I think the main reasons that they've improved policy, first of all, the policymaking process is much better organized and systematic under the Biden administration than it was. I think you have uh, real interagency coordination and communication and uh, a genuine debate about basic fundamental issues and also about how to implement policy. So I think just in terms of process, things are more regularized than they were from their predecessors. Substantively, I think that they have really 
grappled with fundamental challenges that you mentioned. China's growing power and influence, uh, changes in the U.S. position in the world, the questions about the strategy of integrating China and and the extents to which that yielded progress and still face challenges. And so I see a real effort to not just simply promote American power for its own purpose uh, or satisfy domestic audiences, but genuinely grappling with these very large challenges. I do think also that they have gradually over time shifted their policies. I think invest, align, compete has been the three watchwords of their policy, but I think the extent to which they've focused on invest, align, or compete has changed somewhat over time and precisely how they've done it. And I think they have been open to listening to their allies in Asia and Europe, which shows some adjustments in their approach. And I think they genuinely are interested in dialogue with their Chinese counterparts. I do think areas where they could improve is two. One is, I think, on the economic side. I still think, although they've begun to elucidate a broader approach about what the global economy should look like in the U.S. role, I think that they're too pessimistic about how the global economy affects the U.S. economy and vice versa. And I would be more optimistic about the U.S.'s role in the global economy and what it means for the American worker. And I think I would agree with what you were implicitly saying before, that uh, globalization can be used for good. We need to harness it in the right way and provide policies to support those that are facing difficulties and help them adjust. But on the whole, I tend to be an optimist about American society and the direction it's going and our ability to effectively compete economically. I think the other challenge uh, that we're facing is we're still really trying to struggle with how we're going to define what success means in our relationship with China and globally long term. How do we keep score of the relationship, whether it's strategic competition or some other goal? When do we know if we're winning? When do we know if we're losing? How do we know if we're making progress or uh, going backwards? We've discussed a lot in Washington about tactics and strategy, but not end results. And I think we had a clear idea of the end result or goal in the 90s and noughts through a strategy of integration, I think we're still struggling to figure that out now. And maybe that's just simply because it takes time to put all the different pieces together. So I'd give them a pretty good score, but there's still work to do. Would you give them a a much worse grade? Do you think I'm being too kind to them? You're too polite. I guess you are you are waiting for a call from White House. So that is why you are so polite with the Biden's treatment. I mean, compared with my original expectation of Biden's treatment, I would give them only C. I mean, C is still okay. It doesn't mean it failed. Not yet. I mean, Trump administration is below C. It failed. Biden's treatment at the moment is very low, but not yet failed. Unlike in the last year of the Trump administration, we were really concerned about, you know, a larger scale conflict of two countries, you know. With the Biden administration, seems they are able to manage this. But let me ask one more question, because you were in Beijing when we watched the congressional hearing, TikTok. And I think in China, maybe more people watch this in the U.S. You know, my students in class, they keep 
reason that's with me. So we just read some opinion poll suggesting in the U.S. for the young people, most of them do not want to see a banning uh, of the TikTok, and especially for those who are using the TikTok. Do you think this, if that is the case, will they somehow factor into Biden's decisions? consideration because the young people are really the power base for the Democrats in the elections. So that's a question raised by my students in class, and I cannot answer it at the moment. I think to some extent, you'll have people in the U.S. government thinking about the large user base of TikTok and whether placing restrictions, even banning it, would affect their attitudes and views. But I think policy is probably driven more by concerns about TikTok's influence on Americans, the potential for data that TikTok collects to be shared with the Chinese government, things of that nature. And part of that is driven by the increasing blurred boundary between Chinese, the Chinese private sector and the Chinese party state. And the difficulty of knowing where one ends and the other begins, not just on a day-to-day basis, but if there is invocation of certain regulations. And of course, it's difficult for Chinese companies to prove a negative that they aren't sharing data or things like that. Or even if there's a technical fix to that, as TikTok has provided through steps that it's taken, whether we can trust that. So I think it's very difficult for people to be sure And I think that probably is more a driver of the American conversation than the user base. I'm not sure where this is going to end up. The U.S. also has a constitution. First Amendment protects free speech. And TikTok's gone into court before, won an injunction. U.S. changed its policies. And I expect at some point this will be back in court if the U.S. continues down this path. I don't think we have actually a good solution to this. But let me me go back to the grading question, because you you asked me fairly to grade the Biden administration. Let me ask you to grade the Xi Jinping administration and its foreign policy. What grade would you give them on their foreign policy or policy towards the U.S.? Well, let's just talk about China's U.S. policy, because that's to a large extent is different from the overall uh, foreign policy. I would give it a B plus our U.S. policy, a B plus, not A, not A minus, because this has not generated the expected results when uh, Biden entered office. Not B, uh, largely because we are the leaders in Beijing. Basically, they are working hard to make sure this relationship is not uh, off track in spite of various challenges coming from the U.S. So this is still very much an ongoing process. We still have some hope for the rest of this year for some improvement of this relationship. But frankly speaking, I think the clock is ticking down and the window of opportunity is closing. So I hope both sides can make some serious efforts to seize on the moment, to seize the moment, so that one year from now, when we uh, once again talk about grading each other government's policies towards the other side, you can give Biden a B plus, and then I can give Beijing an A minus. So 
Hopefully. <laughs> well, Shimboa, this has been a terrific discussion. I think hopefully people listening understand that you speak with great authority, with great experience, that people may not agree with absolutely everything that you said, but it's really important for Americans and the policy community to hear from people in China about the relationship and where the world is going. We need to have this dialogue. That's the goal of this podcast. That's the goal of and purpose of travel as well. So I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us. And hopefully when we get together in a year and look back, we will be able to give both sides uh, an even higher grade than they've already received. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time.